thank you for joining me. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Jude's List. How are you doing today? You know, all things considered, I have my health and it's sunny outside in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It's a little bit after one o'clock. Yeah. So I cannot complain. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Jude. Pleasure connecting. Pleasure connecting. I'm looking forward to an insightful conversation. Tell us where you're speaking from and then what you do. Yes, I uh, reside in the United States. I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is kind of like the edge of the opening of the western side of the United States. So technically, I'm in the northeast, right? Um, Almost, yeah, we're the gateway to the west. So it's eastern. It's the far western side of Pennsylvania, if anybody knows the state of Pennsylvania. So, yeah. And then what do you do? So, yes, my name is Kalolo Luckett. I'm an art historian, curator, and storyteller. Okay, okay. So how did you get started in that space? Wow. Well, I can take you back to Mississippi. I'm the product of the South. I was born in Greenwood, Mississippi, and uh, from working-class parents. Uh, and... I never knew what a curator was. I loved history, loved books, and I loved, I come from a family of storytellers. Where I was born, it's not even 15 miles from where Emmett Till was lynched in Money, Mississippi in 1955. My parents were five and six years of age when that happened, and that left a major mark for them, and it was a very defining moment for them. Uh, In fact, my mother had uh, laminated the open casket uh, of Emmett Till and put that on her vanity up until her untimely death uh, a little over six years ago. My father was uh, the youngest delegate to be, I would say that of, I want to say my father was very much act a social activist um, in the 60s, same with my mother, but my father was trained by Fanny Lou Hamer. I don't know if you know who no. Fanny Lou Hamer is, but I know that a lot of Africans have looked at the work that she did in mobilizing working class, poor people from the country side, uh, the rural parts of the South where I come from. Okay. And so my father was trained by uh, Fannie Lou Hamer. He was the youngest person to be elected to the Mississippi you know, Dem- Democratic Freedom Party at the age of 18. Um, wasn't able to go to Chicago. This was back in 1968 because he couldn't afford, uh, he wasn't able to raise the $500 needed to, to go to Chicago. So they selected an alternate. Yeah, I come from... Uh, I have a lineage of of people living joyfully, but also living in resistance to unequitable practices. Yeah. And so the work that I do as a curator, when I found out I wanted to be an art historian, I mean, I went to school for history of art and architecture, and I always got into good trouble, as my mother would say. Uh, I was always curious and just asking questions, looking at a lot of the, my formal training is through a Western European aesthetic. And so 
like most people who live in this world, live through a colonial, imperialist, you know, patriarchal, capitalist lens. And so there's a lot that I had to do to uncondition, unlearn a lot of the ways in which we are taught to think and act and behave and feel. So in school, I got in trouble a lot because I always looked at the hidden, you know, figures and they tended to be the figures that weren't talked about in my classes. And I always were drawn to those othered subjects and they tended to be, you know, black or brown people. And so here I was being taught by people who had their PhDs, you know, 17th century British art, European art, and they were missing a good portion of the painting. And so I'd always put my hand up and ask, well, what's going on? Why is this figure wearing this golden collar? You know, what's going on with that? Why is the painter choosing to use these pretty extraordinary and royal colors to depict this black figure? And some of my professors would be very dismissive of me and just say, hey, if if it was significant, we would have learned about it. And I'm like, well, let's talk about it. Let's figure this out. Let's do some research. And so that's kind of how I kept on getting into good trouble. Fast forward, worked my way through various different white-led institutions here in Pittsburgh. I had the great fortune of working in a lot of different institutions and just learning how they operated. So, for example, I was the director of development for the Andy Warhol Museum but which was part of a four different museums under one umbrella. So it was the Carnegie Museum of Art, the Natural History Center, and the Warhol Carnegie Museum of Art Science Center and the Natural History Museum. Those are the four museums. Okay. So I got to see how you know the money flowed in and out of that major institution. And so I have a memory of an elephant when people say they can't fund something, it's not because they might not have the resources. It might be because of existing, like larger issues or concerns that they will less likely want to, you know, collaborate or partner with, with another institution or support an artist. And so I found it very problematic that as long as I've lived in Pittsburgh, I've never seen a black curator in any of these white led institutions never seen a person in the collections management or in the education department in a senior position. And where, where I saw colleagues in other cities working in various different spaces, whether it's white-led or a black-led organization, you saw a wide variety of people. Yeah. And that's really healthy to see in cultural institutions across the board. And I just thought Pittsburgh is in its own little anomaly, its own little silo. It's unhealthy. It's it's for all of us. It's for all of us to. Yeah. I just I just see the. I hate using the word diversity, Jude. I always try to obscure. I, I stay away from it. Oh, I can't say it because it's been co opted. So I'm always like, just wide variety of viewpoints, ethnicities, cultural, you know, people that come from all different backs, uh, walks of life. It helps improve the overall quality of life 
for all of us. We all benefit when we have a wide variety of yeah. perspectives and people, and cultures, religion, spirituality, all of that, sexuality. Um, working in silos, being very homogenous is is unhuman. It's it's inhumane to be very monolithic in how we navigate throughout the world. Yeah. And, and so that's a long story. It's a long story. <laughs> it's a long way of asking me, oh, how did you become an art historian or curator? Um, so. I, I mean, I've, I've got a few questions just off that. It goes back to the point where you mentioned that you didn't find a lot of Black people in some of these spaces. and um, No Black people. No. no black people, no unless black people. they were custodians, security guards, or working in the cafeteria. I kid you not. Yeah. But well, why was that the case? Why was that the case in Pittsburgh? Yeah, I would ask many of my colleagues, and these were people who were my friends, and I would ask them, well, what's going on here? Why is it that I can go to other cities and it would be a different situation? And a lot of my colleagues would say, well, we just cannot that old kind of foolery of we cannot find qualified, you know, black people for these positions. And so for me, I was tired of hearing that answer or, Oh, they didn't apply. And I'm thinking, well, you got to go to people. If, if you, if your sphere of influence is pretty homogenous, you're going to get that type of result. And so for me, I was so exhausted by those just lazy responses. I was like, well, let me bring these people to Pittsburgh. So about a, a, uh, 10 years ago, I launched this initiative called By Any Means. And I brought colleagues from outside of Pittsburgh, Black curators, Black art critics, Black artists to yeah. Pittsburgh to be in conversation with the different institutions here. And also because we didn't have Black curators yeah. working in these mainstream you know, institutions, um, we had Black artists from Pittsburgh in conversation with these people that I brought here. And it was very instruct, you know, informative, yeah. you know, instructive. So my colleagues at these mainstream institutions, like the Carnegie Museum of Art or the Warhol, the Mattress Factory, they could not say no to these folks coming here because they would look pretty bad, right? It would be embarrassing for them not to engage. And so we had a great time. We looked at the collection and this was a way of having this kind of knowledge exchange. And so these curators, we had Rojeko Hockley, who was at the Brooklyn Museum at the time, and now she's at the Whitney. We had um, Jessica Lynn, who uh, her and Taylor Aldridge started Arts.Black. Uh, they've now gone on to lead really just even more like vibrant and thriving careers. Uh, Jessica Lynn is an independent writer, one of the fresh uh, young voices of art writing and art criticism in the art world, hands down. I want somebody to fight me on that. <laughs> you know, Taylor Aldridge is you know, working as a curator in Los Angeles. She's uh, one of the curators at the California African-American Museums. Uh, Tiona McClodin, who's a Philadelphia-based artist, uh, has award-winning artists. Uh, There's just a wide variety of people that I brought here and worked with Jessica Lynn, who's one of my sisters, 
uh, in the art world. Uh, we collaborated to do by any means because I just didn't want to do this alone. And I also wanted to have a younger generation uh, working with me, which is a really important yeah. thing to do. So fast forward, I, I kind of rolled by any means into Alma Lewis. Okay. Okay. Back to you starting that initiative. How far did that reach? How did that go? How did that change things for the work that you wanted to see? Yeah. So I guess when I got, I raised my own money, by the way. So foundations here, when I went to them to say, hey, I want to bring in these outside Black curators and art writers and artists to connect with what's going on in Pittsburgh, a lot of foundations thought, oh, this sounds interesting, but this is outside of our grant guidelines, our criteria. So we can't fund this, Kololo. You need yeah. to give us data to back this up. And I'm just like, well, <laughs> right? Thinking, There's no well, data. You walk into the Carnegie Museum of Art and look for yourself. You fund these institutions that I am critiquing with care. So, I, I, you know, sometimes I, I'm so, I'm so, tired of people saying we need data. I'm like, I get it. You need data to back things up. But for black people, we already know a lot of this stuff is just living out loud, right? It's historically, it's embedded. It's like, it's in the air, it's in the water, it's in the land. So I was like, okay, I'm not yeah. waiting for funding. I'm just going to do this on my own. I, you know, I connected with friends of mine who had discretionary funds and were very supportive of my work and supported financially me doing by any means. And so then I took that money. So raising $20,000, I took that money and then I went back to the foundations and said, Hey, here's my receipts. Here are people are very much yeah. invested in this work. Absolutely. So what foundation is going to say no to this happening? Right. So then I had a foundation who actually match that money so I could adequately, because I want, I believe in paying people fairly. And so bringing these professional folks to Pittsburgh for a weekend, it was a three day kind of um, gathering. And so put them up, pay them an honorarium, put them in a hotel, provided, you know, food, all that stuff. And so we had, it was like a little reunion. A lot of folks didn't know each other, but a lot of black people here in Pittsburgh, there, there's an artist who's 90, yeah. who just turned 97, Thaddeus Mosley, who's a sculptor. Some of these curators and other artists and art, art critics got to meet him. We did a studio visit. We got to tour other artists in Pittsburgh, uh, their studios. So these folks from the outside could be able to get exposure, get to know what's going on in Pittsburgh that did like a deeper dive than what you typically yeah. do. You know, that kind of flyover when you come into a city, they show you all the well-polished mm. spaces that usually are uh, without, you know, black people as if, if we're kind of a sore spot. So I wanted folks that are coming in from the outside to really see where black people live. Where do they work? Where do they make art? Where do they write? That kind of thing. That was really important for me. Yeah. And how did that influence your work you do with It Alma is Lewis one now? of the guiding principles for Alma Lewis. I mean, that name, the name Alma Lewis uh, is taken from 
two names of pretty significant artists that were very influential for me, Alma Thomas and Norman Lewis. Uh, Alma Thomas was born in the late 1800s, 1891. I don't know if you know that, but uh, Norman Lewis was born in 1907. And uh, they are known as the kind of godparents, or you can say grandparents of abstraction, black abstraction in the United States. And so during their lifetime, they were able to, they were both educators in their own right, were very much lived through segregation. Uh, Norman Lewis living in Harlem, but Alma Thomas living in the South in Georgia and then moving up to Washington, D.C. And in the art world, if you're an art historian, they love to go by different periods. So the, you know, color school, which was in D.C., they love to kind of put her, lump her with the kind of color field artists. And I would think that uh, I would see I would see Alma Thomas's work more beyond just the color field. She was not only an educator and a painter, she did theater, set designs, puppetry. The woman did so many different things. That's amazing. Uh, yes, yeah. And so it wasn't until later in life that she was able to dedicate her life to her uh, being a full-time artist because she ended up kind of retiring. And she was the first uh, African-American woman to have a solo show at the Whitney Museum in 1972. And she was just a little over 80 when that happened. And that was in 1972, mind you. And Norman Lewis has ties to Pittsburgh because he was the first black artist to receive the Carnegie International Award in 1955. And that was the same year that Emmett Till was lynched in Money, Mississippi. So just to kind of give you these kind of disparate events happening in the same year, you have this young boy, this teenager, not even teenager, young boy being lynched. And then you have Norman Lewis winning the Carnegie International Award, which is the second oldest international art fair, art festival in the world. The Carnegie International is the second oldest to the Venice Biennale. So just to give you some context to that. And so the Um, names are very important to me. And that's why I named my contemporary art platform after these two monumental artists. So can you tell us a bit more about your work that you do? Yes. Uh, So I have right now about 2,100 square feet uh, space. And it's kind of uh, broken up into a gallery. Uh, I have three different programs, unique programs that I run. One is our gallery program. And then the other one is our artist residency. The artist residency is separate from the exhibition gallery space. I run a three-month residency where I bring artists from outside the region to Pittsburgh to connect with what's going on here, but also really spending the time, space, resources, providing resources for them to dream, to reimagine, to conceptualize works that they haven't had the time, space, or resources to do. And so we also have a one-bedroom furnished apartment that's just a couple blocks away. I believe in separating your workspace and your kind of private space, because it's important to take those breaks. You need breaks. Uh, So we provide a pretty healthy honorarium 
Um, I'm pretty transparent with the financial uh, resources that we provide over the, the three months uh, residency. We provide uh, $5,000 a month uh, and plus $1,000 towards transportation, supplies, materials that you need. So the uh, overall financial honorarium is $18,000 for three months. And mind you, some people are like, oh my God, that's a lot of money. I'm like, actually it isn't. It's a very responsible, healthy financial stipend because you have to pay taxes on that, right? So if you think about 30% of that, do the math and you'll see. But artists that are rigorous, that are full-time, are invited to participate in our residency. And I love the way in which the residency is structured. Um, It's by invitation. So building relationships with artists over time. So I have a better understanding of when the artists, when it's right time for them throughout their career of when they can come and take that three months to do a deeper dive in their practice. So we also provide... So what do you look for in, in, in that uh, well, process yeah, so in the artist? Like I said, it's about building bridges and building relationships. So it might take me a couple of years before I even invite an artist to the residency because I want to get to know them. I want them to get to know me and just kind of my practice and my process and my energy and do studio visits. I always like to go visit the artist. I know with COVID, I did a lot of virtual visits. I still do that, but it's important for the artists to, for me to be present and for them to be present in the same space. So as far as like what I'm looking for, it's, I feel like that, that that's what, it's a feeling. It's a feeling that I get when I get to know them. Uh, I always ask artists, what are you reading? Yeah. What are you listening to? What are you watching? That all informs who you are. Um, also the way that the artist kind of sees the world, that they're not this ice, they're not this individual. It's more of looking at the world through a collective lens that they're not working in a silo. So it's, that's, that's something else that resonates with me. It just goes back to kind of a feeling that I get when I just, build a relationship with, with artists and not all artists that I work with will want to be, take three months off to do a residency, you know, um, cause we also, yeah. it, it, each residency yeah. is tailored to that artist. So they do a site visit before they come here. So they're not helicoptering into Pittsburgh. So we are setting them up to meet with other people. We have partnerships, we collaborate with other arts organizations, so they're able to take classes at different establishments that have teaching artists, um, institutions where they have you know, ceramics, woodworking, blacksmith, printmaking. So those artists are able to glass making. The Pittsburgh Glass Center is another place that we partner with. The Pittsburgh Center for Arts and Media is another place that we partner with. So those artists are able to take classes and expand their practice, uh, which is really, I think, important because sometimes artists can get pigeonholed into a certain type of material or media that they work with. So Alma Lewis, there's this residency gives them 
that platform to really do a deeper dive and to experiment, uh, which is really, really important. Uh, so you're not pigeonholed as being this one type of artist, right? Yeah. In your span of your career, what has been some of the things that have stood out for you to identify who a great oh, artist gosh. is? Oh, gosh. That's such a hyperbole, I feel like. It, it's, a, it's like one of those great artists. For me, uh, I know people say that, wow, you have your finger on the pulse. You, I hate this whole thing of you discover an artist before anybody else does, but you're kind of working off the grid. You're not in any of these mainstream museums, which for me is I'm intentional about that. I do not want to work in any mainstream museums, but yeah. I, yeah. I like to advocate for artists that I want to support. I'm not looking for the external, like the art world to tell me who I should be. No, I'm not. I'm not. I've never, You're looking for I've the never validation. I just, I'm not wired that way because I came from the South because my name is non-European because my mother always told me you got to sit in the front of the classroom because I went to a product of the Catholic school. And so me and my brothers were literally up until middle school, the only black kids in our, our Catholic grade school. And so from day one, my parents always told me you're different, not in a vertical hierarchy, but it was just because you look different. Your name is different. You're going to have to push yeah. yourself and be seen. So the legibility of Kalolo Luckett operates yeah. in spaces that might not see me. So that's how I kind of approach my curatorial practice, if that makes any sense. Okay. Okay. It does. It does. It does. It does. Because you're, you're totally given visibility to individuals who ideally would not get access to certain spaces. And then you're guess, creating that yeah. space for them. I guess and, so. You, you know, know I, that makes a big for difference. For me, I just think my parents always say, you've got to do the work. Don't look for somebody to validate you. You, you just do the work and let the work speak for itself. And I know that's easier said than done, but that's just how I live my life. I'm not waiting for somebody to validate me. Uh, it's the story of my life. If, if, if I waited for some money or if I'm waiting for a grant or if I'm waiting for somebody to say, good job, Kalolo, I would not literally, I would not be here. And really it took a village. It took so many people believing in me to get me to this point, because like I said, I come from working class family and I don't come from money. I'm not a trust fund baby. Most people in the art world, when, you know, you think of a curator, most people don't think of Kalolo Luckett, right? I know I didn't, I know I didn't. And so yeah. I know that, that there are infinite possibilities of what a curator can do, what they can look like and how they can operate. And it doesn't have to be just this very myopic kind of narrow way of defining what, who, who can be a curator and what does a curator do. Okay. And, and in that sense as well, how have you separated your practice as a curator? How have you differentiated what you do? I used to, when I first started out, I used to, because in the museum world, the curatorial department is separated from the education department, which is separated from the development department, right? 
So for me, silos do not exist. And so I had to typically raise my own money to do my projects. And that's still the case today. So I kind of blended all of it. And so if I needed somebody to build curriculum around my, you know, my, my, my exhibition, I would actually go looking for a person who pushed me as a curator elevated the work that I'm doing and also offering up things, different ways of seeing things, ways that I probably might not have approached uh, my work, but they're creating this portal, this other opening to really expand this, the work that I'm doing as a curator, like as a facilitator between the, you know, artist, the object and the viewer. So I really see it as this, very much, yeah. it's more of a family, a gathering around a table, and that I want to play at my strengths, so I want somebody to compliment what I'm doing. And that's just the way I was raised. Yeah. So, I mean, I was very ra- I was raised, my mother was, the way she raised me and my three brothers, For I come from a blended family, but my three brothers, my core brothers that I grew up with, my parents, my mother always said, your actions have consequences. So if you don't act right, it has a ripple effect. So whenever we'd get in trouble as children, if I did something wrong, my mother would punish all of us. So I kid you not, she got that switch out. Wow. I love my mother dearly, RIP. Uh, but for her, like the way in which she raised us, it worked for us. Uh, and so I remember only getting into trouble yeah. four times because yeah. Yeah. my other three brothers all got in trouble and we all got in trouble. So even if you weren't there, when somebody got in trouble, you're still the collective, the collective in the eye. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My mother was always like dispelling the eye. You know, you are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper, that kind of thing. And that just always stuck with me. Now, not at the time, I didn't believe that. It wasn't until I got older that I was like, okay, <laughs> mama, you were right. And I thank you. I thank you. So for instilling that in yeah. me. So. Yeah. And how, how have you also passed that lesson on? Uh, have you practiced that in your own Well, life I always think whenever I rock, walk through the door, whenever I walk through the door, I want to leave that door open because I want other people walking through that door. I don't want to have, I don't want the younger generation to have the education that I had. I want it to be a much more enlightening, enlightening and more fruitful and not like a one way. It has to be two ways. And so I don't like this, the way in which education is set up that the teacher teaches and you are the student and there's nothing you can get out of this besides receiving information. It's a two way street. So. Not only am I being taught, I'm also teaching. I'm actually doing work. I'm also researching, right? As a student, as a pupil, I'm going out there. I yeah. am interviewing people. It's, 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 it's just not information coming at you. It's, it's you receiving, but also giving. And that's central to okay. being an art historian, being a curator, working with artists. So when I go into a studio visit, and it's not a one-way street. I always ask people, okay, well, are there any questions ahead of time that you want to ask me? Like, 
how can this studio visit serve you and me, right? Because most times people yeah. get all like, yeah. oh my God, a curator's coming in and I got to clean up the place. And I'm like, I don't want you to clean up your place. I want you to operate just like you're working in your studio. Yeah. It'd be nice if you had water. It doesn't have to be San Pellegrino or, you know, Perrier or anything like that, but just, you know, having, being thoughtful and mindful of one another. Sometimes I bring my, I bring water for the artist and they're like, yeah. what are you doing? Oh my God, that's so nice. But it's just, you, you know, it's, it's, it, it needs to be generative and it can't be this kind of, oh, the curator has dominion over the artist. That's just, I can't, it just makes me icky. I can't, I can't, I don't, I don't like, I don't like existing in worlds like that. So. Yeah. In your opinion, Kilolo, in an oversaturated marketplace, how do you quiet the noise and differentiate what you do as an artist? How do you stay true to yourself as an artist in 2023? Wow, how do I stay true to myself? Well, well, you know, I'm middle-aged. I'm 50 years old. So it's easy for me not to get all tied up in social media because I did not grow up in the world of social media. And I'm very thankful because I think of younger people and social media and how it just kind of, I see it as more of a form of distraction than a form of being generative in that way. It's very destructive. There's some silver lining in social media, but still. I am very old school. I love to pick up the phone. I love to letter write. I love stationery. I love to send out, use memos on my smartphone and talk to somebody that way. I just wished my friend Kyle, his birthday was yesterday. I sent him a little memo singing happy birthday to him and I sent it to him. So it's those little things for me that tune out the noise the cacophony of all of these voices that are trying to compete. I love to pick up an, a book and read it. I love to meet people in person. I love to talk to people on the phone. I think that that's a way for me to stay grounded and not feel very anxious because I think reading a lot of stuff online reading the news and you know media a lot of it is sensational and that's something that i just don't subscribe to and can easily be pulled into so i like to kind of put away my digital devices and kind of just do old school like i still subscribe to certain magazines uh i also do some digital stuff too but i don't I'm yeah. not a big, I you know, ebook person. I like books. That's why I have the black. The, the I love the printed. Yes, Print. printed matter is matters to me. That's why I have the black archive at Alma Lewis because I I feel that it's really important for especially the younger generation to understand. You know, in this digital age the importance of having actual ephemera, uh, printed media, uh, printed material that you can actually touch and look through 
and to be able to compare side by side what's going on the year that something was printed. It was a limited edition. What did the paper feel like? What was going on during that time period? Who are the folks that were in the printing industry? So there's just, there's all these other threads that for me, when uh, you're actually living in the moment and focused on what's going on right now, just leads to a much more healthy and fruitful life for me. I don't even know how you're going to edit yeah. that because that was. But I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is fine. That is fine. But I would also say that now it's becoming more difficult to not get distracted. I mean, with all that's going on, with how much connected we are. What would you say to like a young and up and coming artist who needs to like find? Uh, their voice or who needs to find their niche or find what they do? My advice to a young or just an up and coming artist, an emerging artist, because you could be in your 40s and starting a practice. I would say, one, do the work. And that means research, read, Find out what makes you happy, thriving as an artist. Don't be afraid to take risks and also to find your your tribe. Find the people that support you and in supporting you, they also challenge you. And this is where criticality comes into play. Uh, We are in a world right now where criticality is seen as something as a disservice. It's highbrow, which it isn't. And I think when you critique with care, when you care about something enough that you want to critique it, that's what I'm talking about. And so being able to do work, create work and get critical feedback. And, and that sometimes means you have to be vulnerable. You have to be intentionally vulnerable uh, with your work. And I say that as a curator who writes, having other people edit my work, look at my work, ask me, why did I write this sentence this way? Uh, uh, why, why, why am I, you know, positioning this artist in the way that I am when I'm writing about them, uh, doing the research around them? Uh, so that's what I would say to somebody, an artist who's emerging, who's just starting out, to make work every single day. And you don't need a physical studio. That's another thing some artists feel like, oh, I'm starting out. I I can't do my work until I actually have a physical studio that's outside of my residential place. And I said, your studio is wherever you choose to make it. And, you know, you, you might be working inside your apartment and it might be in your kitchen or it might be in your living room. It might be that way for the first couple of years until you're able to build up your practice where you're able to sustain yourself. And, and so that's, that's another thing that I think about when artists are looking at Instagram and for example, when they see how people, other artists are living. And I always say, don't compare yourself to any, anybody else. Yeah. You know, you are your own person. And so just hold a mirror up and 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 navigate that way uh, instead of saying, oh, I want to be this or I want to be there. 
where you are, where you're supposed to be right now, but you have to be rigorous in how you're, if you want to be an artist, same like with the curator there, there, you have, you have to do the work that is involved. Uh, and there are no shortcuts, no matter how much money you have, you have to learn this. You have to read, you have to study, you have to do that kind of, you know, rigorous work. Yeah, I know you keep referencing do the work, but what, what is the work? And why do you have to do it every Just day? Just like I, I think I liken doing the work to health and wellness, right? So if, if I don't work out on a daily basis, and I'm not talking about weights, lifting weights, it's taking a walk. It's, it, it's, it's eating in a, in a way that is fortifying for myself. And so it's like, exercising your muscle, right? Reading. It, it's, it's dissecting, you know, a movie that you're watching and looking at it and, and, and thinking about like, okay, who are these characters and, you know, what's going on there? But that in doing the work is working on your craft every single day. And it doesn't have to mean that I have to write something every day, or I have to do a studio visit every day. It's literally reading about somebody or listening to a podcast, listening to music that helps stimulate your mind. Because as I said before, you know, if, if you're not working out, like if you're not working your muscle, right. Atrophy happens, right. You lose that muscle, right. Yeah. Yeah, So you have to keep it in shape, right. You have to stimulate it in order to be able to lift something or, um, you know, so I, I'm just, yeah. So that's what I mean when I mean do the work. There aren't, there aren't any shortcuts. Nobody can tell you how something, how to do something. You can take that information in, but you also have to apply it in your everyday life. You have to be a pr- practitioner of the work that you want to see in the world. And that's what I'm doing at Alma Lewis. And it's not yeah. easy. If it were, if it, if it, if it, it's not if easy. it was easy, I think more people would be doing it. And I did it because I know that I'm more effective working outside the museum, cultural institutions than working inside it. And we need both. It's not an either or it's, it's a, it's an, it's a both. It's not an either, either, either this or that it's a, it's both. And so I think that creating a space, I created Alma Lewis because I wanted a space to center black women first and foremost, because black women were always taking care of other people. We've taken care of the world. And so for me being in a space that I always say, I want to be free in the space that I operate. I want to be unencumbered. And I want the artists and the other cultural workers that work in this space to feel that way as well. And so working in a space where you feel free, then that creates a space where others, when they come here, they have that sensibility to operate and navigate that way as well. Yeah. Kilola, also based on your experience, if there were like guiding principles you could share with artists, for any of our listeners listening in, for people who've been 
practicing for a while and have just hit that plateau of where they feel like there's no growth or they don't see the results that they're looking for. What would you say to them? How do you push them to keep going? I mean, sometimes people just need a break. Depending on where it is, depending on where you are in your practice, sometimes you just need a break if you're able to, you know, because sometimes people aren't able to financially. But I believe in having breaks. I mean, I know I'm a workaholic. But other people will be listening. It's like, Kalila, you work all the time. But anyway, I say this that sometimes you need to step away from your work to be able to return to it. And I don't know what that, that, that can look different across for different artists. Yeah. I think that if you're having kind of like a writer's block, you know, uh, sometimes you just might need a pause and that pause might be a day. It might be a week, might be a couple of months, but it all depends on who I'm talking to and how well I know them. But I do think that sometimes you just need to pivot and that might be what you need to bring you back to your center. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't want to see like, oh yeah, keep going. Yeah. You know, sometimes you might actually need a pause. You might need somebody just to, you know, talk yeah. through what's going on in your practice. Uh, um, and, and I feel like that's what I do here at Alma Lewis and providing that platform, especially through, well, both the residency and our exhibition space or gallery space that the artists have that, 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 that space to kind of, and also expand and also pivot in a space that is nurturing and supportive and that is kind of like a catalyst for for their career. Yeah. Also, what has been the most challenging part of what you do as a curator and an art historian? I, I feel like my my practice has been working on the margins. And so I feel like I will never leave the margins. And there's something about kind of working in the shadows that creates like this liminal space that is fortifying for me and that people need to kind of come to where I am instead of me always having, I feel like I'm having to go backwards to demonstrate what I'm doing. And so getting back to that, doing the work, demonstrating and showing people what it is that I'm doing, especially when I describe Alma Lewis, people like to compare it to something else because we're creature of habit, right? And so when you come, when yeah. you're, if you are able to physically come to Alma Lewis, people are like, whoa, it is a certain kind of energy, a certain kind of feeling that I don't get when I go into other spaces. Okay. Just to close on that, five, ten years out, what do you hope this institution to to become? Well, I, I my 2.0 is going to look, it's going to be a space that has 
probably triple what it is right now. We'll be serving three residencies and having a larger gallery presence and having a standalone space for our Black archive. Um, I want to have, I see Alma Lewis existing in a much more deeper global way. Um, a lot of the artists that I work with yeah. are not only in the United States, but they're in the Caribbean. They're in West Africa. Uh, and so I just think that the work yeah. is going to go deeper and I want to establish, and I've been talking to colleagues in your part of the world of doing this kind of international exchange. So not only, you know, artists from the continent and artists from the Caribbean uh, living in the United States, but actually their first, you know, place of where they reside, of being in another country that they will be able to come to Alma Lewis, yeah. where Alma Lewis is physically. So, yeah, I'm going to have a larger footprint yeah. uh, because the impact that Alma Lewis is having is, is it, it, it's, it goes beyond just the place, the physical place that I reside in, in Pittsburgh. It, it really has a much more global footprint. So, and I want to also build, you know, scholarship around yeah. the artists that I've I've built these relationships with and that the artists that I know now, I'm going to know them five years, 10 years, 15 years down the road, because a lot of the artists that come through Alma Lewis right now, this is not the first time I've worked with them. This might have been the second or third time, but it's just in a different kind of capacity. Yeah. yeah. Well, it sounds like you have the work cut out for you already and you're already making strides. If we're connecting, then definitely you're, you're doing some amazing work. And I found you last year in, I think even in 2021. Um, so I'm very honored for what you're doing. I'm glad that um, we got to connect. If there's any last words you'd like to share with our listeners, you can do that as well. Thank you for having me, Jude. And I appreciate the work that you're doing. And uh, you can check me out at almalewis.org and also on Instagram at Kololo Luckett. Okay, okay. And then lastly, Kilolo, in your own words, what's your definition for love? What's my definition for love? Well, my definition for love, which is essential, is integrity and self-love. There's just two ingredients, self-love and in integrity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing. This has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time once again. Well, thank you so much, Jude. Really, I appreciate you. Really, I appreciate you. And I'll, I'll keep in touch. Okay. Thank you so much for your time today. All right. Bye Take bye good bye. care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye.